Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. In Des Plaines, Illinois, near Chicago, a man who served time in prison for sex crimes was let out. Today, they found the bodies of at least three young boys buried under his house. He is charged with murder. Here's Jim Cummings. Police have been watching John Gacy's suburban Chicago home for the past 10 days. They became suspicious when 15-year-old Robert Peast disappeared after he allegedly was last seen with Gacy. This morning, police searched Gacy's home and found the decomposed remains of three bodies in a dirt crawl space under the house. They suspect there are several more bodies buried here. It's suspected because of the looks of the area down in the, uh, the uh, crawl space. There are some other mounds, and it appears to be more there. Gacy is a 36-year-old building contractor who reportedly dressed like a clown to entertain at children's parties. Prosecutors say he once went to prison for a sex offense in Iowa. This afternoon, Gacy was charged with murdering Robert Peast. And after hearing the remains of more bodies were found at Gacy's house, Judge Marvin Peters ordered him held without bond. At the hearing, police said Gacy has confessed to the Peast murder, he will be examined by a psychiatrist. Meanwhile, investigators have started to dismantle Gacy's house and garage as they continue to search for other bodies in this quiet suburban neighborhood. Jim Cummins, NBC News, Des Plaines, Illinois. Hello and welcome to episode 161 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. These past few months, we've covered some high-profile cases. I talked to the captain about John Benny Ramsey, and this week I'm talking to Nick, the other co-host of the True Crime Garage. And we're going to be talking about one of the most prolific serial killers in world history, John Wayne Gacy. If you're a fan of true crime, then you are familiar with Gacy and the moniker, the Killer Clown. Gacy is a serial killer that really stands in his own class. Last week we talked to Dahmer, who I also believe is in a class of his own. Hell, I guess all these serial murderers are similar in the sense they kill, but the reasons for that reason are, are all varied. But before I get to my conversation with Nick, I wanted to give you a little summary of what was going on in 1978. And there are two really good articles that I'm going to read from. The first being from Douglas E. Neeland of the New York Times, who wrote an extensive piece on Gacy as well as Mark Wilson of the Associated Press. Now, they ask the questions people were asking in the days and weeks after the horrific discovery of 28 bodies in the crawl space below Gacy's home. So from reporter Douglas Neeland, quote, In the clean, well-lighted world of middle-class America, the hardworking, outgoing, community-spirited man next door is not supposed to be the suspect in the worst instance of mass killings in the United States in this century. But John Wayne Gacy is that. Today, Gacy, a short, round, 36-year-old remodeling contractor with a Charlie Chaplin mustache, was scheduled to appear in the Cook County courtroom for arraignment in a case that may ultimately involve the deaths of at least 32 young men in the last several years. A grand jury has indicted him in seven murders, and the prosecutors are seeking further indictments as more of the 19 bodies recovered so far are identified. So that's pretty crazy. So there's already 19 bodies at this point. And Neelan goes on to ask, but who is John Wayne Gacy? Is he the affable businessman? Driven, often boastful, but eager to please? The clown, Pogo who entertained children at picnics and parties. The outgoing man most neighbors, friends, and family members knew here in Springfield, Illinois, and in Waterloo, Iowa. Or is he the night wanderer portrayed by investigators, a man who cruised the homosexual scene's meanest streets in his late model black Oldsmobile with police-like spotlights picking up young male prostitutes or other willing partners? The man who lured youngsters into his contracting business, brutalized them, and sexually killed them? 
the unreformed convict who served 18 months in an Iowa reformatory after he was found guilty in 1968 of having engaged in a Waterloo teenager in sodomy? Or is he both? A close look at his past does not provide easy answers as to why and at what point John Gacy's life may have taken the turn that made him the prime suspect in the bizarre sex murders. Most people who knew him will not discuss him, and those who will seem confused by the charges against him. John Wayne Gacy was born March 17, 1942, and I want to make it known that we recorded this episode on the 17th, and it was just ironic it was his birthday, and in no way, shape, or form would we have planned that. So anyway, his parents, John and Marion Gacy, were factory workers, and he grew up with his sisters, one two years older and one two years younger in a working-class neighborhood on the northwest side. Now, his father died nine years ago when this article was written, and his mother, 71, lives with his younger sister in Arkansas. The elder sister lives in Chicago. All three family members have desperately sought anonymity, but his younger sister, an articulate mother of three, agreed to an interview if her identity was not disclosed. Quote, he was a normal person, like everyone else, she said. Just a normal person. My mother just can't believe it. All she does is cry. I hope people know we're being torn apart by this. We just can't accept it yet. The only unusual thing she could recall about her brother's younger years, she said, was that he occasionally had blackouts. The problem she continued was diagnosed he when he was 16 as a blood clot on the brain that was thought to have resulted from a playground accident years earlier. So, you know, we've talked about different reasons for killing. This is kind of one of those interesting instances where you see somebody have a head injury and then eventually they become this monster. I don't know if it happens to everyone, but I think if it damages a certain part of your brain, I think that can definitely at least antagonize that aspect of your personality. Like, let's say you have a violent personality and you just haven't taken it that far. But, well, you know, I'm just saying uh, head injuries can do lots of crazy things. Just look at all the CTE stuff that's going on with the football players and hockey players and you can just imagine you know especially if it's back in the 40s or 50s when modern medicine wasn't really modern medicine it was still um i don't know it was it wasn't what it is today so let's just say if it was something serious then maybe um it would have been treated differently I'm not sure. I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV. So John Gacy went to a vocational school. Now this is where he took business courses. Now he did transfer to Prosser Vocational High School, but he did drop out after only a couple of months. So his sister would go on to say that he was the sort of brother and son who could not do enough for his family, who stayed in close touch by telephone who visited once or twice a year. Now, the family knew of his sodomy conviction in Iowa, she said, but it was an incident in his life that he paid for. She tried to focus on other things, such as her brother's uh, desire to play the Pogo the Clown and the other costumes he had designed for himself. Now, he did. she did tell the paper that he always enjoyed entertaining children, which is absolutely fucking disturbing. In 1964, before he was 22, Gacy actually was hired at the Nunbush Shoe Company. Here, that's where he was transferred to Springfield as a manager of the concerns retail outlet at Roberts Brothers, a men's clothing store. That's when he met his first wife, Marilyn Myers. So they actually, this is interesting because his wife's parents well, her wife's parents, I should say, had purchased a few Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises in the city of Waterloo, Iowa. Now, in Springfield, Gacy had plunged into his job, and this is reading directly from Neilan's article again, 
In Springfield, Gacy plunged into his job in community life, joining the JCs. He was elected first vice president and chosen as the chapter's outstanding man of 1965. Quote, he was a very bright person, energetic, and never displayed any abnormal signs, recalled Ed McCrate, who worked with Gacy in the Springfield JCs. The only unusual incident McCrate said he remembered came when he and Gacy were working on a parade route, and Gacy put on a flashing red light on the dashboard of his car, claimed he had a card entitling him to such a light, but McCrate said he responded that, quote, he might be entitled to it in Chicago, but not to use it here. So again, Gacy's former father-in-law, Fred Myers, did sell his fried chicken franchises a year and a half before he moved back to Springfield. Now, they did go and speak to Fred Myers, and they did get to talk to him through the door. And he told Neyland that, quote, I can't understand why they would have let him out of prison in Iowa, unquote. And that's an interesting question because, you know, he does get caught in 1968 for something terrible. So in 1966, the Gacy's moved to Waterloo, and this is where Myers would manage the fast food outlets. So Gacy was busy with the JCs. You know, um, he was the vice president of the Waterloo JCs. Uh, chaplain of the chapter of the chairman of its prayer breakfast. He was a real go-getter, said Charles Hill, manager of the Waterloo Motel and friend of Gacy. Quote, he did a good job and was an excellent JC. So again, the people that were speaking about him, they're just all pretty much in shock that this guy is the guy that they thought was a normal dude. And uh, obviously he was not. Uh, You start to see some of these things happen in um, the 60s where he's starting to explore certain aspects of uh, his personality. So, you know, another quote was from a lawyer, and he said that he was a gladhander type who would go beyond that. And that was Tom Langless, and that was a lawyer who knew Gacy through the JCs. Quote, he'd shower too much attention on you as a way of getting more attention himself. Now, again, this is another thing where it's like he's gregarious, but almost too gregarious. And he's kind of, I mean, he dresses up as a clown, but this is nothing against anybody who dresses up as a clown. But I feel like he did that for attention. So, again, there was uh, another quote that came from... Peter Burke, who was a lawyer who opposed Gacy in 1968 for the local JC's presidency, which he subsequently won after Gacy was charged in the sodomy case. Quote, he said, he said, quote, he was not a man tempered by truth. He seemed unaffected when he caught in lies. So in May of 1968, there were two teenage boys that told a Blackhawk grand jury that they had been forced to commit, uh, you know, sexual acts for him or to him. And there were jury records of one of the youths that said that Gacy had chained him and begun choking him. But when he stopped resisting, his assailant loosened the chains and allowed him to leave. That kid's lucky. Now, he was indicted and convicted and was sentenced in December 1968. This is what I was referring to earlier. Um, He was sentenced to 10 years at the state reformatory. Now, according to the city psychiatrist, before the sentence for sodomy, he said that the doctor had concluded that Gacy exhibited antisocial tendencies that would not be medically cured. So that goes back to a lot of the conversations we've had about the um, predilection of pedophiles and people who prey on children because that is not curable. It's absolutely um, not something that can be solved by going to jail, by treatment, by anything other than very drastic measures. So it's kind of... uh, A slippery slope, let's just put it that way. 
So Gacy gets out of jail, though, and 18 months. He serves 18 months of a 10-year sentence. Yeah. And so he returns to Chicago. And this is where Mac Wilson or Mark Wilson of the Associated Press wrote on December 28th in 1978. He said, investigators using trowels and garden tools unearthed the skeletal remains of six more bodies beneath the home of John Wayne Gacy, who faces one murder charge and is suspected in the sex slayings of 32 young men and boys. Now, he said the bodies were lying face up. Some of them had their underwear stuffed in their mouths. And this was in the muddy crawl space, as I said, beneath the home of John Wayne Gacy. Now, this was also in a suburb of Norwood Park Township. So Gacy actually told police that he buried 27 bodies beneath the house and threw five other bodies in a river. Because, you know, that's what you do, I guess. And the Chicago Tribune reported in Thursday's editions, I'm reading directly from Mark Wilson's article here, Thursday's edition, police are using a map drawn by Gacy to locate the bodies under his house. Again, the dude had 28 bodies. Now, they said 27. I think it turns out to be 28. Whatever. They, it's disgusting either way. The dude lived in a house with bodies. Hey, man. Like, that's just wrong. So far, the map has been completely accurate, said one investigator. We have no doubt that we will find 27 bodies in the places he has shown us. Cook County Sheriff's Sergeant Howard Anderson compared the crime to the 1966 sex slayings of eight student nurses in Chicago for which Richard Speck was convicted. Now, if you guys saw Mindhunter season two or season one, I forget which one it was, where they speak with Richard Speck. And that is an interesting uh, episode. If you haven't seen it, definitely worth checking out. It's obviously fictional, but... The interview itself is pretty spot on. I'm pretty sure they did those verbatim. So uh, definitely worth watching that. Again, everybody hopes Mindhunter Season 3 will eventually come out, but waiting on you, Fincher. Anyway, back to the story. So Speck was a slaughter, though, Anderson said. This is more grisly because we're just pulling up bones and pieces of flesh. Behind the masks of a clown, of public service, and of fatherhood was evidence of something terribly wrong with John Wayne Gacy. But it was ignored until skeletons were found beneath his home. He was convicted of sodomy with a 16-year-old boy in 1968. He was accused of attempting to rape a teenage boy in 1971 and of raping a 27-year-old Chicago man last March. At least three times, parents gave Gacy's name in filing missing persons reports on their teenage sons. His former mother-in-law said she had complained to Gacy that his house smelled like dead rats. Now, this is Mark Wilson's article, reading verbatim from there. But until last Thursday, when the 36-year-old construction owner confessed to sexually molesting and murdering 32 boys and young men, Gacy lived a prosperous life. He had ambitions of running for elective office. Quote, he was very hardworking and popular in his community, always giving block parties and dressing up like a clown, said Robert F. R. Martwick, the Democratic Township Committee man who nominated Gacy in 1975 and appointed job, the job as secretary-treasurer of Norwood Park Township Lighting Commission. The commission maintained streetlights in the unincorporated areas of the township. Mark Wick said he urged Gacy for the job, quote, based on his activity in the neighborhood, he said he wanted to make it a better place to live and said that someday he wanted to run for elected office. So again, just imagine John Wayne Gacy as a politician, because you know how some people believe that politicians are sociopaths. Coincidence? I don't know. Well, anyway, Gacy was very gregarious, and he was able to hold a conversation with pretty much anybody that he ran into. And this was one of the things that Mark said was impressive to him. And so when Gacy offered to bring in a crew of young construction workers to clean up the Township Democratic headquarters at no charge, he was like, quote, you don't find people like that every day. Again, this is Mark Wilson's article. So Martwick 
was a prominent Chicago lawyer, and he said that he made no background check on Gacy. Quote, we can't fingerprint everybody and be a point to office, although maybe we should. <laughs> Times sure have changed from the 1970s. <laughs> Good luck getting a background check that wouldn't show that these days. So authorities said that Gacy actually told them where to find the bodies of the victims, and uh, searchers had only covered about one-fourth of the area under the home. So these bodies were buried in very shallow graves. Again, uh, the police chief went on to say, quote, I've never seen anything like it. And this was police chief Edmund Dobbs of Cook County. So Gacy was, you know, suspected of basically luring teenage boys to his house. And he had this construction company, PDM, where he would basically offer these kids high wages and then, you know, what happens. So the murder that he was charged with was that of Robert Peast, and he was 15. So he disappeared um, on the day, like, Gacy had run into him at a pharmacy, and he had uh, promised him a job, and so he came over and was never seen again. So authorities said that, back to the article, authorities said many job applicants turned down jobs with Gacy because of his bisexual advances. And Tony Antonucci, 19, said he narrowly escaped two attempts by Gacy to force him into sexual activity. He, quote, he said he would give me money if I would, and I said no, but he began to get pushy, Antonucci said. One of the overtures was made while the two were cleaning up in the Norwood Park Township Democratic headquarters. Martwick said he wouldn't even want to guess if Gacy hoped to gain political stature to shield the darker side of his life. Quote, but nothing would surprise me now, Martwick said. But I believe he just had two personalities, one of which I never saw. So there was another mask that he wore, and that was the one that hid the homosexual violence that uh, sent Gacy to prison. But he did have two marriages and two children. Now, according to Gacy's first wife and the Chicago Tribune, she said, quote, John came across very straight. He was a very likable person who could charm it right out of you. And she asked not to be identified by her current name, but she did have two children with Gacy, and they did divorce in 1969. So um, that was after the sodomy charge, which is uh, good. Good thing that she did that. And... Uh, definitely uh, made the smart move, but the fact that he did have uh, children, it's a shame because that is, uh, they have to live with that as the rest of their lives. And that's just, that's one of the collateral damage things that you don't discuss much. We don't hear about much on shows such as this where you, you think about, okay, well, <clears throat> this guy gets killed and, well, all these other people get impacted too. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that you just have to ex accept, but it's really hard to un understand that uh, the people can live two different lives. And G Gacy was clearly a master at that. And it's very odd. So... He did end up getting married again to Carol Boffin. Now, this was in 72. And she actually said that he, quote, started bringing home a lot of pictures of naked men just before they separated. So they got divorced in 1976, and apparently this was due to infidelity. So this is the one where, again... Gacy's second this is the the mother-in-law who said the his house smelled like dead rats I mean geez that's like really not a good got not a good look so um Gacy again I told you was sentenced to 10 years in prison and that was on June 3rd 1968 now the judge said quote unsatisfactory in many respects as imprisonment is at least that will ensure for some period of time that you cannot seek out teenage boys to solicit them or for moral behavior of any kind. Now, if he had served the full term of his 
you know, sentence, he would have left prison earlier in the month that this article was written, and that was according to Mark Wilson. Now, Tony Antonucci, Antonucci said Gacy came to his home late one night when he was alone, and he said Gacy told him he wanted to show him a trick. Then he handcuffed him and partly undressed him. So Antonucci said the handcuffs weren't fully locked, and he was able to free himself from Gacy. He said Gacy told him, quote, you are the first one to get the cuffs off. Yeah, that's freaking disturbing as all get out. I mean, just imagine that situation. And John Butkovich, 17 of uh, Lombard, he disappeared on July 31st, 1975 after going to Gacy's house to pick up a paycheck. Quote, we gave Gacy's name to the Chicago police, said Butkovich's mother, Teresa. That's not Mother Teresa, but her, yeah, you know what I mean. Quote, we gave him Gacy's name and they tried to talk to him, but he didn't want to talk, so they just dropped it. They, the police, thought that John had run away because everybody in 1970s just ran away. So another person disappeared in 1976, and this was on December 11th, and that was one Greg Gotsick of Chicago, and he was 17. Now, his parents told police that he actually had worked with Gacy. Unfortunately, the police did not go and follow up that lead. So you have a lot of situations here where this guy could have been stopped in the middle of his uh, killing spree. And Nick and I will talk about that as far as how quickly his murders accelerated and whether or not he would have kept on killing. So this is one of the things that uh, you have uh, a quote here that says, uh, quote, we live in a democratic society and we can't go out making arrests based on what some parents think, he said. Now that was Lieutenant David Mose and he was the news affairs director for the Chicago police. You, you know, he said there were 23,000 reports. So it's like, okay, but that seems like you're really passing the buck there, buddy. And again, on December 11th, 1978, this is the case that brings everything to a halt. Robert Peast disappeared. This is when you know you have great parents because they would not let this be considered a runaway. So they actually just went to the police station and said, listen, our kid did not go away or did not run away, and we really need you to check this out. We have this guy's name because we know he was going to try to get a job there or was offered a job. So this is where they start the investigation. So this detective, Joseph uh, Kozinzak, I apologize, and uh, so he actually uncovered the sodomy conviction, and so that's when... He decided he needed to go and question this guy. And again, this did lead um, to his arrest. And I'm going to call him Kaz because I can't pronounce his name properly. He said he was particularly interested in the case because he was a 15-year-old son who went, who had a 15-year-old son who went to the same high school as Peast. Now, it, in addition, Kaz said the body of Frank W. Wayne Landigan, 18, was found in the De Plain River November 12th, more than a month before Gacy's arrest. Now, he said that there was underwear stuffed in his mouth. Now, this is similar to the stuff that was stuffed in the mouths of the bodies under Gacy's house. So, yeah, the Gacy case also has been compared to the crimes of Elmer Henley Jr., who had accomplices but killed 27 teenagers in Houston. And definitely we'll have to do a episode on that particular guy because that's a lot of killing and, again, not really known too well. I mean, I'm sure there's tons of stuff out there about it, but I am not as familiar with that case as much as Dahmer, Gacy, Bundy, Ridgeway, BTK, all the, you name them. So, like, you think about this, and it's, you have John Wayne Gacy 
doing all this stuff and you can't imagine what the investigators were thinking because they start they uncover this stuff and that's when they like start putting surveillance on them and whatnot and Nick and I will go into that in our conversation and it's just interesting to me that we have um I don't know, just just this crazy guy dressing up like a clown, holding block parties, thinking about running for poli- you know, in politics. It's kind of freaky. It's almost like American Psycho. Uh, and so he's like a Patrick Bateman, but not. I don't know. It's weird. So the bottom line is John Wayne Gacy is probably in the history of serial killers, probably one of the worst. Uh, I would only say that maybe Bundy, Dahmer for the way that he killed his victims and the fact that he was a cannibal. But this guy, I mean, I don't know. This guy was just, he just really didn't care about lives and didn't care about the lives of anybody's children so I mean it just caused worlds of hurt for everybody so I think that's where John Wayne Gacy stands alone he's just a monster and they're all monsters but he is a true through and through monster and with that being said let's go into my conversation with everyone's favorite guest Nick from the true crime garage But real quick, before we jump into our conversation with Nick, I want to talk about this week's sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We all know relationships take work, especially the most important one you have in your life, and that's the relationship you have with yourself. You know, a lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well. But how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? I know I go out of my way to take time each day to focus on myself. It's just an essential part of my routine. This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. Listeners of this show know I'm a huge fan of mental health and therapy. And I have personally been involved in it since I was a kid. So, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com who. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash who. Welcome back to the show, Nick. It is a pleasure to have you on Who Killed once again. And uh, this week we are talking about uh, John Wayne Gacy. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Well, I feel good to be back, Bill. I thought, uh, you know, it's been a while. I was wondering if I did something to not uh, make it on the show anymore. Uh, you know, I think it has been a while since you've actually been on, but um, I will say that it has not been your doing. It has been a busy first part of the year for uh, for myself, as well as the podcast, as well as the other shows that I've been producing. So it has been uh, a wild ride for 2022 so far. So I'm very thankful that you are on the line today and... Uh, Again, you host True Crime Garage with the captain. And just before we get to that point, where can people find your show? Uh, well, we are on every every podcast platform that I can think of. Apple's a great way to listen to it, uh, the Apple podcast. And so is uh, Stitcher, our good friends over at Stitcher. But yeah, check out True Crime Garage. We, we did a couple episodes recently that your listeners will really enjoy. I believe this was a case from Northeast Ohio, from the Kirtland Hills, Ohio area, where uh, Raymond Timbrook, 
He was killed 30 years ago this month. So it's an anniversary, a sad one, a bad one, but we're trying to bring renewed awareness to his case and remind everybody that it's still unsolved all these years later. It's a very interesting case, a lot of twists and turns. He was a successful businessman who was lured out to this fake meeting uh, through his work and he was he was shot and killed there is basically like a hit job and we intru- we we interviewed a lot of people close to the case so there's a lot of boots on the ground research that was done on that case that's uh the case of Raymond Timbrook from Kirtland Hills Ohio and that's on our show True Crime Garage well that's great yeah definitely everybody likes the um you know the local stories and i think that that is uh, an awesome thing for uh for people from from northeast ohio to definitely check out it's unsolved so you know anything that you may know again things change over time so if you know anything about that case feel free to look out look up your uh you know local fbi or i think that uh you probably contact crime stoppers too if that was the case do you know if the case is still being um do they still have a detective on it or do they have a number well, so th- that's the pisser. Um, as you know, being from that general area, Kirtland Hills is not the, the most populated area. That's kind of an affluent area um, with a small population, and thus they have a small police department. And unfortunately, from what I've been told and what I've seen and read over the years in this case is that it's not just a cold case. It's a frigid cold frozen in time kind of case to the point where I believe the Lake County prosecutor said that it's not a closed case but it's an inactive case um, so it's it's kind of dead in the water uh, so to speak and that to me is is very aggravating considering his two sons when Raymond was killed he was 44 years old he was an engineer with CT consultants and his two sons, uh, one was Brian Timbrook and his other son is Scott. And they were high school age at the time. Brian was a senior. He's the oldest of the two. He was 18. And uh, both of his sons are still around and still still looking for justice. There was an interesting um, billboard that was put up in Ray's case back in the mid-90s. And this is something I only bring it up, Bill, because this is a billboard you may have seen. And it had Raymond Timbrook's picture on it. And it said, you know, father, businessman, murdered. And I think it said something to the effect, this this would have been, I'm guessing it would have been up in Mentor or either Willoughby, one of those two areas, which is both near Kirtland Hills. But, uh, and that's because his business CT Consultants was in Willoughby, and I believe he lived in Mentor at the time when he was killed. But it said on the billboard that, you know, Scripture, you know, the Bible tells us what to do. And so come forward and confess and repent or just go to hell is what the billboard said, which I thought was pretty cool. And they left that up for a while. One rumor I heard, which I kind of chuckle at this, and I think it's if it's true, I think it's very cool. Uh, It's kind of movie-esque, but uh, the one rumor I heard was that a suspect that the police really liked in Ray Timbrook's case, that they put that billboard up on his route to and from work. So this individual, and I say he, which I I shouldn't say he, because I don't know if the suspect was a, a male or female and if you listen to the episodes, you'll understand why I, I say that I don't know if the suspect was male or female. There's reason to suspect several males and there's reason to suspect a, a, a female or two in this case as well. So, uh, But the rumor I heard was that a suspect that they really liked at the time, they put that billboard up on that person's route to and from work so they would have to see Raymond's picture every day and and read that little post that said, you know, confess, repent, or just go to hell. That's insane. I think that's actually a really smart thing to do if you're in yeah. a position like where you're pretty confident you know who the victim or the, you know, perpetrator is. And 
the only way to really get to them is to maybe remind them on a daily basis. Hey, let's uh, let's scrape together some uh, cashola and put a few of those up in Delphi, Indiana, right? Absolutely. I think that's one thing that we should definitely be doing. Uh, you know, not to go on a tangent, but there really hasn't been much movement on that after that major announcement that they had, and I'm actually a little surprised. Yeah, and I, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to go too far off track here. Just, just the, just bringing that up brings all kinds of uh, conjures all kinds of thoughts and opinions that I have on, on the current state of the case. But uh, I'm, I'm feeling confident. I'll say that. Knock on wood. Okay. Well, let's just hope. So that is in Indiana. And the person that we're talking about was not too far away. It was in the state next door in Illinois. And that would be the killer clown. That would be John Wayne Gacy. And, you know, Mr. Gacy, everybody knows Mr. Gacy. If you listen to true crime, you don't, if you don't know who John Wayne Gacy is, then definitely do your research because everybody's done an episode on the killer clown. So John Wayne Gacy was a serial killer, obviously, in Chicago. And I wanted to start off today talking about, you know, when he first got arrested and then the discovery of all of the bodies and all the victims, because it's really uh, it's really shocking how many people um, this guy impacted. And for a lot of people in the neighborhood, you know, he was considered a somewhat normal guy. I mean, he was a local clown. And um, I know they got that, and everybody loves to jump on that killer clown line because he was a clown. But it's funny when you read about it, like the clown industry got really upset when, <laughs> when, when... Right when they kept putting that moniker on him because they're like, listen, we're not bad people. We're not right. bad people. And <laughs> so. Well, I mean, you get it, right? It's like whenever a postal worker shoots up a place or takes somebody out, then it's all of a sudden, you know, everybody, they get that bad stigma that comes with that, with that line of work. And he, you know, he did the clown thing as kind of charity work and Gacy is is a weird dude and one that that has always fascinated me I mean he was active in local politics he he was he was a well-liked individual he was charming I mean I, these are words that I don't like to associate with somebody as monstrous as he was but he was a likable guy and unfortunately that is why it was so easy to fall victim to this dude. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the fact that he was able to do, he was able to get these kids and get their trust, and the fact that he was able to do that, it kind of goes in line with what he was doing. I mean, he was help, you know, he was doing all that stuff in the community and building good will. I guess it's that's the way that you get to those skills to start to manipulate vic potential victims. Yeah, and he 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 collected a lot of his I think collected is a good word to use here. He collected a lot of his victims from his business, which was PDM contractors, which stood for painting, decorating and maintenance. So he he was a business owner, he was a successful business owner. And he procured a lot of his victims from from his work where he would he would employ these individuals or or with the ruse of offering them employment, uh, lure them to his home. And then once you were one on one with this guy, you know, it's like that old uh, line from the tool song. Once I saw them, I knew they were mine. And what they mean by that is I. I knew they were dead. They, I was going to possess this individual. And that's kind of how it was with Gacy. If you were one-on-one -on -one with him at his home, the chances of you leaving there are between the margins of slim and none. Similar to the uh, Jeffrey Dahmer situation. I mean, 
I just covered yeah, Dahmer's him. offering money and hey, you want to take some uh, provocative photos or hang out and drink some beers at my place? And uh, next thing you know, he's trying to uh, trying to turn you into a sex zombie. Yeah, right. And that's actually, you know, I wonder because Dahmer wasn't stupid. I wonder if he was aware of Gacy's tactics because if you look at his first. Uh, the first thing he was caught for, you know, he was sexually assaulted Donald Voorhees, and that was in 1967. Now, Gacy also tricked some teenagers into believing he was con- commissioned to conduct homosexual experiments in the interests of scientific research and paid them up to $50 each. Hmm. Sounds very similar to what Dahmer would do when he would offer people $50 to take nude pictures. But it's interesting because he goes and he gets he gets arrested for this and he mm. does uh, go to jail. Now he goes to jail and he only does 18 months of a 10-year sentence. So uh, again, it's kind of weird that like he went from being... Like in the 60s, like you said, he's in politics. He's working uh, with the Democratic Party, um, you know, and the next thing you know, he's sodomizing young children. And it's kind of a, I don't know, it's it's really, um, it's interesting. And uh, like I'm looking at his, his biography right now and I'm looking at how much he would have made. So Gacy worked as a KFC manager in Waterloo, Iowa. In nine, so I wonder what <clears throat> the cold cases are around that area because, as we know, people don't usually just start killing. Um, well, actually, he he got into some trouble when he was there, and it's thought that he that he left the area because he was starting to get in trouble. And I don't recall, Bill, if it were if it were employees, you know, he a lot of times these guys will will find something that air quotes here works for them for what they want to do. And then they kind of follow that modus operandi for the rest of their days. And so you kind of see that here, starting with KFC, where he's he's in a position of power, right? He's the manager. I can't remember. I want to say that maybe his his wife's father might have owned been a franchise owner he did he owned three kentucky fried chickens in the waterloo area and so yeah so he's working for he's working for dad and he's in a position of power because he's running this restaurant but also not not just running the restaurant it the buck kind of stops with him because the next the next person up on the on the ladder there is the owner who is his father-in-law and so he's in this position of power, and of course, with a KFC or fast food, any type type of uh, business like that, you're going to see a lot of teenagers working there, young adults working there, and that's unfortunately that's what Gacy was really into. You know, guys at fifteen to, to twenty years old, roughly. And I mean, and he was twenty two at this time, so yeah. And he he was using that to have these little. Uh, you know, experiences with with some of his employees and some people that he knew. I think he was even paying a uh, uh, a local sex worker, which which really blew up in his face at some point because I think that kid, I say kid, and I think he might have been about you know, I, and I think that was the problem. I think he was a kid. He was like sixteen, seventeen years old who was accepting money to do certain things or hang out with certain people. And I think that kind of blew up in his face bill because that guy, he used it as a a bit of a scam on, on Gacy, a a blackmailing scam. Hey, I'm going to out you to your, your family. I'm going to out you to your father-in-law or to the community. If you don't pay me this money or do this or do that. And, uh, so things got dicey for Gacy real quick out there. And eventually he moves to, uh, to Illinois. And of course, Everybody in the true crime community knows where the story goes from there. Yeah, and I just came across something pretty interesting that I'm not sure you're going to be too thrilled about. That uh, 
at some point, Gacy would provide uh, fried chicken. And uh, when he would do this to charities, he would be insisted. He insisted on being called the Colonel. <laughs> so well, that's not a name that I that I chose. Uh, it was well, a name that was captain, bestowed upon me. <laughs> the captain needs to maybe reassess. <laughs> Commodore, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I will go on record though, and this is not Colonel related at all. Though I'll go on record stating that uh, KFC KFC does still have some very fine chicken. They do, and it's really good. And this episode yeah. is not sponsored by KFC. <laughs> hashtag not a sponsor. Not a hashtag, not a sponsor. But if you want to sponsor, <laughs> please reach out. But yeah, I mean, so that's basically what he was doing. In, in Waterloo, before he went to Illinois, he was basically, he was fine-tuning his method. Like, he was having these after-work after parties and where he'd play pool with the kids and give them alcohol and try sexual advances on him and then say, you know, ah, I was just kidding. You know, was just screwing around if they didn't want to do anything. So you got to assume that that was a way that he was able to get some skills under his belt before he went to Chicago and then started doing what he did. Well, and you brought up something that's interesting to ponder here and I'll throw in my two cents on it with uh, Dahmer, you know, wondering if Dahmer may have, Learned about some of these other types and mimic some of their some of the things that worked successfully for them and things that and avoid things that didn't work for them. I I'm guessing here, and I've never heard. I've listened to and read quite a bit of Dahmer's interviews, the ones that he agreed to before he was he was killed, and I never I don't recall him ever referencing any other serial killer or any of those types of methods that that I that I could recall. I feel like with Dahmer's situation and and it's a good thing to it's a good thing to kind of explore and think about because a lot of them do. A lot of them do, you know, you and I grow up and we 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 might be able to rattle off some football statistics or baseball st- statistics and these guys can rattle off serial killer statistics for you because it's it's something that interests them and they're learning to do what it is that they fantasize about doing and they don't want to get caught because that stops them from doing exactly what they what they want to do their number one hobby if you if we want to call it something like that but uh I with Dahmer I feel like I feel like he was such an alcoholic and and kind of out of of control with the drinking that I don't know that he was studying much uh, on these people and and he was he was unique in in his own way and very very much a recluse and I feel like I feel like he was just smart enough unfortunately that he was able to pull a lot of this stuff off because uh because of his intelligence. Now Gacy he's able to pull off a lot of this and again, get a lot of these victims based off of one, his position of power that he put himself into by owning this business. He's, he's got a reason to get you to his house. Right. And we covered, when we covered the, the Gacy story on true crime garage, we did it way back on episodes one Oh five and one Oh six on the true crime garage radio dial. That's a long time ago. Those long time ago. But, um, we really focused in on one of his victims. This was Robert uh, Robert Peist, who was someone that he procured by using his business. He was so Robert had this job. He was he was a young man, 16, 17 years old, I believe, and he worked at this drugstore this local drugstore. And so Gacy's in there with his business and he's talking to the drugstore owner about redoing a portion of the store. And while he's there, Robert catches his eye. And so he goes over and he's talking to Robert and he's like, Hey, how long you've been working here? You know, the boss tells me you're a real good guy. You're a real good worker. You show up on time. You're a hard worker. I own my own company and I'd like for you to come and work for me. I have a position that I'm trying to fill here and I 
what do you make? How much money are you making here? And I, I think Robert may have told him. We don't know exactly the interactions, unfortunately, between him and Gacy because Robert's not around to tell us. But um, the the general thought is a, a ploy that he would use time and time again with some of these individuals that never actually worked for him. See, the problem is if he takes any of these people on as like a W-9 uh, employee and – now there's a paper trail back to, to Gacy, and that's going to be problematic for him. But a lot of these individuals, he doesn't take on with the paper trail. You know, it's it's offers of paying people under the table. Um, Robert never had a job with him, but he shows up to Gacy's home for a quote-unquote job interview with Gacy, and he, he never makes it out alive. And it's believed that Gacy would would get, you know, say, hey, Bill, how much are they paying you here? Oh, they're paying you this amount? Well, I can pay you double. And, I mean, what what red-blooded American isn't going to show up for a job interview where you're being told you're going to make double what you're currently being paid? And, unfortunately, that was something that worked for Gacy, and it worked time and time again. And he would do this handcuff trick where you know he gets you over to, to his house this was something he used uh, several times probably not all the time but but several times and he gets you over to his house and like you said hey you want to go down to my basement shoot some pool you want to you know hang out I got this cool house kind of he had like a very much a bachelor pad type house that would be interesting to these these teenage and and young adult boys and hey you want to hang out have a couple beers and let me show you this this handcuff trick. And what he would do is he would put the handcuffs on himself, and he would he would be uh, he would hide the key, and he would he would get himself out of it and, and show you like oh check this out isn't that cool I I you know you here here's my hands in these cuffs and have you check them, and then next thing you know he's he's managed to get himself out of it. And then he goes, hey, I'll teach you how to do this. Let me show you how to do this. And next thing you know, the handcuffs are on you and you don't have the key. He doesn't have any plans of teaching you how to get out of those handcuffs. And now you're you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. And this is something that he did uh, several times when, when he'd have these victims in his home. I think Robert was the one that really kind of put the nail in Gacy's coffin, to be honest with you, because he was the last, I mean, that was the one that really got the police on his tail. And uh, the whole tricking of the, you know, the, the magic trick, the magic trick. Here, ch let's check, try these handcuffs on. I mean, could you be in a more vulnerable position than being handcuffed and not having a key? I mean, it is, it has to be the worst feeling ever. You mentioned it earlier about once it's, once they're in the room, they're they're theirs. <laughs> well, yeah. Unfortunately for Robert, yeah, Robert Peast, um, uh, gosh, you know that whole pharmacy thing, you know, where he, he's talking to the guy. He actually talks to his, to the mother, doesn't he? I believe he talked to the mom. Yeah, I I going off of memory here, but I think there was something of that because I believe that Robert told his family that he was going for this job interview. And that he was going to go talk to this great guy, John Wayne Gacy, who owns this business that is in the process of remodeling the drugstore that I work at. And this is going to be a really good opportunity for me. And I think, man, rest in peace, Robert. The, you know, you, you look back in some of these cases, you, you can find yourself in some of these cases. And I, I, when I talk about somebody like Robert, I kind of see a little bit of myself. Uh, he, he was a kid that was hardworking and he was hardworking and, and ambitious because he was saving up for a car. And of course he wanted to go talk to this John Wayne Gacy about this good job opportunity, double his, his uh, hourly pay. Yeah. Five bucks an hour was a lot back then. Only because he, it would get him, it would get him that much closer to his dream of owning his first car and um, really sad story. But we, we, Big time kudos goes out to Robert's family yes. because they were the they spearheaded basically taking down John Wayne Gacy. And it was at their insistence that the police really got involved and, and got 
caught on to this dude, this monster, and, and what he was up to. Because, you know, they call I, – I believe that they called the police and they're like, hey, our son never came home. He's missing. This is not like him. He's a responsible kid, and he's he's not come home. And, of course, this is – this is way back when then when the common response would be well he's a he's a what 16 year old boy he probably out partying with his friends he'll come home uh, when he gets when he gets hungry um yeah he probably but, ran away that typical right. typical response and so his family is like yeah that's not good enough we are not accepting this as the response from our our public servants here so they they went to the police department and demanded, hey, you you let us fill out the forms. You let us put in the missing persons report right here and now, and we'll file as many of them as it takes for you guys to get out there and start looking for our kid. And that's what really, really kind of tips the police off. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm going off of memory, and I'm probably missing some of the details here, Bill, but basically the police start looking into these missing persons cases, and they're like, there's kind of a central figure here. Well, so what happens is, yes, it was the morning after that uh, Robert did not come home when they went to the police station and just demanded that this is not a missing, not a runaway. This is a missing person. And that's when they talked about this Gacy character and the police. Actually, that's when they started looking into this background. So the officers actually discover that, yeah, he had a prison sentence for sodomizing a 15-year-old boy. So that was definitely something that they were aware of, and then they started working the case, basically. And it's almost it's similar to that scene in Goodfellas when, and almost a re- reminder of, like, the Wayne Williams case, but, like, when they had all these surveillance uh, vehicles following him around. And he became one of those. He was the guy that would be like, hey, come and have lunch with me. Yeah, he would toy with them. And sometimes he would go out on fake errands and just kind of drive around and force them to follow him around. And you're right. Like he, he did kind of the the Beverly Hills cop Axel Foley thing, you know, send him some food mm-hmm. uh, while he's while he's somewhere getting something to eat. And he he really toyed with them for for quite some time. And. Um, I, I think there was, there's one of those straight to video movies about Gacy where I think in that movie, it shows him sitting on his front lawn in a, in a lawn chair, drinking beers, just staring at the car. Um, and so it's kind of, it's kind of comical when you, when you really think about it here, you have this, I mean, this is like public enemy number one right? This is a monster. This is a guy that you believe is responsible. They believed at the time when they're following him around that he was responsible for the disappearance of multiple young men and children. It wasn't quite the number that they find out later when they tear through his home. But uh, yeah, this is publicly public enemy number one. And he's just kind of toying with the with the cops. And God bless the good cops for not losing their minds and attacking this guy or, or doing something silly that would would end up costing them later because once Gacy was arrested and once he was taken down, there wasn't much hope for him. There wasn't much fight for him in in, in the eyes of the law or in the eyes of the court system. He, he was not going to be walking away after they were able to bring forth charges against this guy. And on that note, we are going to end this week's episode. And next week, you can listen to part two of John Wayne Gacy with Nick from True Crime Garage. And again, as you know, you can find all of True Crime Garage shows on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, as well as you know that I drop new shows of Who Killed every Friday. And you guys know that you can help support the show directly uh, using the Venmo app by using my username at Bill-Huffman-3. Now, every contribution does help keep these Slow Burn podcasts running. And again, that is a way to directly support independent journalism. You could also leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And again, those five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover in the spotlight. 
So, again, if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases I have covered, as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, always follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you so much again for listening, and as always, until next time, stay healthy and be safe. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.